Hey guys, week four of our deep dive into the most famous and ancient statement of the Christian faith. We know it as the Apostles' Creed. Now, our goal has not been to merely know the creed or memorize the creed. Those are good things. But the goal is not rote repetition or reciting the creed because it has some kind of power. It doesn't. The creed, reciting it, doesn't save us. Our our joint recitation of it weekly isn't some kind of magical incantation where by saying it we receive some kind of power or reward. The goal here is to use this ancient creed for the same ancient purposes for which it was created, to help us know what it is that we say we believe. The Apostles' Creed, it came into existence to be used by the ancient church in the same manner in which it's still sorely needed by the modern church. I've been listing those reasons for you. There's five of them every week. The creed exists and we need to study it because we live in in a time of, well, incrementally so, in times of confusion about what's true and right and real. And so the creed helps us to, to define truth, to correct error, to connect us to the faith of our fathers, to summarize what it is that we say we believe, and to define Christian unity, the principles upon which we as believers in Jesus can unite. And so, with that in mind, today we get to what I would say is by far the most controversial line in the entire creed. So controversial, so misunderstood, that many versions of it and many churches have just chosen to admit it from the reading. Now, look, as I've been attempting to show you week by week, the creed, while it is not the Word of God, it is based on and it is pulled from the Word of God. And so if there's something in the Word of God that was misunderstood and then placed in the creed, that would be dangerous. It would need correcting or deletion. In fact, it's dangerous to misunderstand the Word of God. It's even more dangerous to misapply it. As I was reflecting on that this week, I came across a story that's a true story, hard to believe. In the 1980s, the then owner of the A&W root beer restaurant chain, a guy named Albert Taubin, he launched for the restaurant chain what was called Third is the Word. It was their Third is the Word campaign, and they were going to promote in that campaign A&W's new third-pound burger. What they were trying to do was compete with McDonald's smaller quarter-pound burger. Taubman recounted that, quote, we were aggressively marketing a one-third-pound burger for the same price. But despite our best efforts, including first-rate TV and radio promotional spots, they just weren't selling. Well, confused as to why these burgers weren't able to compete, even though the burgers were priced the same but bigger than their competitors, he brought in a market research firm. And the firm conducted a focus group to discover the truth. Participants were concerned, they said, about the price of the burger. Here's the quote. Why should we pay the same amount for a third of a pound of meat as we do for a quarter pound of meat, they asked. You see, it turned out that the majority of the participants incorrectly believed that a third of a pound was actually smaller than a quarter of a pound. Despite the confusion, uh, Taubman took an important lesson from the experience. Here's what he said. Sometimes he said the messages we send to our customers through marketing and sales information are not as clear and compelling as we think they are. Guys, today we come to that portion of the creed, that one that is not as clear and compelling as I believe it was originally meant to be. And we're going to try, I'm going to try to fix that. So let's get at it by reading it aloud again today 
the Apostles' Creed. Join with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Did anybody in the audience catch the one-third pound burger right in the middle there? I mean, we've been reading this every week, and every week when I get done, uh, I look around the room, and I can just kind of feel the question hanging in the air. Wait, what? Jesus descended into hell. Jesus went to hell. I mean, is it even okay to say that? Why? What for? Where does that even come from? What does it even mean? Now, if you've ever wondered any of those things, if you felt you might need to duck the lightning bolt coming your way when you read it out loud, I have good news for you. You're not alone. This one line in the Apostles' Creed, these four words have been wrestled with and argued over for the better part of the last thousand years, right up to today. And I said, it's, as I said, excuse me, it's so controversial. Many churches, a lot of denominations, have just removed it entirely from the creed. I would argue that they're doing it probably for the same reason that A&W ditched the old third pounder. People either don't get it or they misunderstand it. So in order to understand, to, to know what it is that we say we believe, that's what we're trying to do here, what we need to do is we need to back up and understand some history about the creed. Now remember, the Apostles' Creed was a document. It was never approved at any one church council. It was a statement of faith that took shape over several hundred years. The statement that Jesus descended into hell, those four words, that's actually not found in any of the early versions until it appeared in one of the two versions that was published by a, a scholar named Tyrannius Rufinus. He was a fourth century monk and a theologian. Now, he put that saying in there. After that, it wasn't included again as part of the creed until 650 A.D., 300-some years later. In fact, Rufinus is the only person who includes it before 650. But again, here's the third-pound burger in this. Rufinus, when he included it, he did not think that, that it was going to mean that it would be translated that Jesus Christ descended into hell. I think if he were here among us this morning and we read this out loud, he would say, wait, 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 what? Where'd you get that from? And I can imagine the look on his face when we all looked over and said, dude, we, we got it from you. See, what Rufinus understood, what he thought he was putting into the creed, the phrase that today we translated as descended into hell, what he understood it to mean was that Jesus descended into the grave. As I understand it, put simply, what he was trying to get across was that after Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, he then went to the same place that every person who dies does, the grave. Now, another way to put it would be that he descended to the dead or to the place of the dead. What we're emphasizing here in the creed when we say this is that Jesus did what dead people do. 
Jesus went where dead people go. Now, valid question is, where was that? Well, as you're going to see in a minute, it would depend on who and when you asked. Now, in trying to explain if these four lines should be included in the creed or not, debate still rages to this day. John Calvin, the renowned leader in the Protestant Reformation, he postulated that what the creed is saying here is that uh, when it says that Jesus descended to hell, what the creed essentially means is that Jesus experienced all of the tortures of hell. Jesus experienced the full wrath of God to every man's sin while on the cross. So when we say he descended into hell, Calvin would say it's more metaphorical. In other words, he experienced, he, he tasted hell on our behalf, which I think is an interesting take. I don't think anybody would deny that Jesus experienced the full wrath of God on the cross. But, I mean, the creed already spoke to that when it said Jesus suffered, suffered under Pontius Pilate. We talked about that last week. And it's already said that Jesus was buried, so why would he say it? Why would he now, you know, kind of predate that? So this conclusion seems to be both redundant at one level and poorly placed at another. Now, there have been others, other theologians like Wayne Grudem or pastors like Tim Keller. They say that this line has been included and kept in the Apostles' Creed because of a misunderstanding of several scriptures, primarily two of them. There are more, but primarily two of them. The two that get picked up most are two that were written by Jesus' disciple Peter. Here are the two of them, and, and these are, again, some of the scriptures that support including this line in the Apostles' Creed. Peter wrote the following. He said that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And here comes the part. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison before they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. See, the traditional creedal interpretation of that being when P Peter says that Jesus, quote, went in spirit to proclaim to the spirits in prison that formerly did not obey. The traditional understanding of what Peter is saying is that, that Jesus goes to hell to preach to those that were alive in the days of Noah and didn't believe. There's another similar verse from this same Peter in the same letter, one chapter later, later, chapter four of his book. Here's what he wrote. He said, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him, here we go, who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, in regards to the one I just read you, that last one, Keller and Grudem would say that when Peter said that the gospel was preached to those, quote, who are dead, he's saying, sure, they're dead now. The gospel, though, was preached to them while they were alive. That's what Peter's talking about. They have since died, is what Peter's saying. And that would make sense if you look at the context in which he writes it. Peter was actually arguing against those who were, seemed to be saying, look, Peter, what good is Jesus' gospel? What, what good is, is your gospel? Because the people that you preached it to died, just like everybody else. 
And so Peter was saying, well, of course they died in the flesh, but they're now alive in the Spirit. In terms of the earlier verse where Peter said Jesus went to proclaim to the spirits in prison who didn't obey during the the days of Noah, those same scholars would take these words or those words to mean that Christ, through the voice of Noah, went and preached to that generation whose spirits are now in prison. That is hell. In other words, Peter didn't say that Christ preached to them while they were in prison. He says that Christ preached to them once during the days of Noah that he preached through the person of Noah, and now those souls are in prison. You might hear that and think, well, that seems like a bit of a cop-out or maybe an overreach. Until you, you, you take a look in the same letter, Peter already, in chapter 1, he already wrote about the Spirit of Christ speaking through prophets of old. In the first chapter, here's what he said. He goes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. So it wouldn't be inconsistent for Peter to say that it was the Spirit of Christ in Noah who was preaching to the spirits that are now in prison. So scholars that fall into this camp, they refute that either of these verses support the creed when it says that Jesus descended into hell. They would argue it should be taken out. So I've now given you two views. The first is that when we say Jesus descended into hell, what we're doing is essentially saying he experienced the pain and wrath of hell on the cross. The second is, well, the creed is misinterpreting the Bible verses. It's kind of a third pound burger moment. People don't understand it. We've misunderstood the scripture. Just stop saying it because it's not true. I want to give you one last interpretation of this. And trust me, there are plenty others, okay? I know if you know there's others, I know there's others too. I don't want to do all of them. But this is the one I found most interesting, if not convincing. And then I'm going to tell you why any of this matters a lick and why you should care. To again, to know what it is that we say we believe, we've got to understand what the scriptures teach about what's known as the realm of the dead. And I'm going to tell you why, because that's what the creed is actually saying. It's, It's what the creed is affirming. The creed, when we say that Jesus descended into hell, what the creed is saying is that Jesus went to the realm of the dead. Jesus went where dead people go. Now, I know the creed reads hell, but that is because it's a translation issue. I I think a good argument is we we should change it to what was actually originally written, that Jesus went to the realm of the dead. In Hebrew, it would have been written with the word shoal there, S-H-E-O-L, or in the Greek, it would have been the word Hades. I think a better argument or solution to our one-third burger problem would be to to say that Jesus descended to Hades or Sheol rather than eliminating it altogether. And let me explain why, because it's important. See, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as I said, the Hebrew word that was used to describe the realm of the dead, where you go when you die, was Sheol. If you asked any of the people following Jesus around, this is what they would have told you happened when you died. You went to Sheol. And it simply meant that you went to the place of the dead or the place of departed souls. In the New Testament, which is written in Greek, that word shoal in the Greek is the word Hades, 
which refers to that same place, the place of the dead. Same word, Sheol and Hades. Now, the New Testament's description of Sheol or Hades is that Sheol or Hades is a temporary place where souls are kept as they await the final resurrection. And I'm going to get to that, that concept, excuse me, wait for the final resurrection and judgment. I'll get to that concept in, in a few weeks, that concept of judgment. But for now, Sheol or Hades, when you read those terms in the Bible, those terms aren't speaking about hell as you and I tend to think of hell. Let me show you that. You can see it clearly in the book of Revelation. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about this. Jesus has this disciple John and he's been uh, sent off to this island of Patmos, exiled from uh, his home of Ephesus because he refused to acknowledge Caesar Domitian as the son of God and Lord. We looked at that in the creed. Well, while he's off on Patmos, God gives him a vision of a coming final judgment for all man. Here's what John wrote. He said, the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. When you and I think and talk about hell, when we read hell in the creed, right, what we're actually thinking about is the lake of fire, this eternal punishment. That, as we discussed last week, we all need saving from. Now, just to add a little bit to the confusion, in the New Testament, there's one other translation or word that gets translated hell a lot. It's the word Jesus used, Gehenna. When Jesus speaks of, of hell, most of the time the word he's using is Gehenna. Gehenna is an actual place. So when Jesus spoke of Gehenna, people knew where it was. They could point to it. It was a, it was a place of burning garbage outside the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus was equating this smoldering dump to the lake of fire John saw. Now, many people refer to Hades and the lake of fire and Gehenna as hell. They're not. They're not the same. This causes the confusion. Listen now. Jesus did not go to a place of torment after his death. He did not go to the lake of fire. He did not go to Gehenna. We're not confessing that when we read the, the creed, we're not saying that. And no scholars believe, very few anyway, believe that Jesus went to a place of further punishment after his crucifixion. That's not true. Guys, when we confess that Jesus went to hell, what many scholars, if not most, would say is that Jesus went to Hades here in, in, in our creed, incorrectly translated as hell. Hades being not hell, but the place of the dead. And Hades, this realm of the dead, while most often in the scriptures is seen as a bad place or a place of punishment, according to the scriptures, Hades actually has two divisions. Hades is the place you go when you die. There are two places there. There is a place of blessing in Hades and a place of judgment. You can best see this in a parable Jesus taught that Luke recorded. Some of you know it. It's a story about a rich man and a poor, name, a poor man named Lazarus. The rich man in his life, well, he, he lived lav lavishly, and he ignored, in a sense, on his doorstep, this poor beggar named Lazarus. And so here's what Jesus says. He says, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Abraham's side is a synonym for heaven, 
or the place where the righteous exist in the realm of the dead. The rich man died and he was buried. In Hades, there you have it, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, excuse me, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. Those, so those who want to go from, one, from, from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Guys, this chasm, this chasm is a chasm in Hades, the place of the dead. It has two sides, separated by this great chasm. You see, scholars who ascribe Jesus as having gone to Hades, which was translated as hell in the creed, see Jesus on one side of this chasm, the side of Abraham, the side of blessing, and they see the rich man on the other, on the side of judgment. This is why Luke, think about this, when he wrote the book of Acts, he could say regarding the resurrection of Jesus that he, Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, Luke acknowledges Jesus' presence in Hades, this place of the dead, right? But that he was not abandoned there. He wasn't left there like, like all believers. None of us will be left there. He was resurrected from that place as all of us will be. Luke is not saying that Jesus went to hell when he says his soul was in Hades, not abandoned there. He went to the blessed side of Hades and he didn't stay there. You see, when Jesus died, what the scriptures seem to be indicating, at least a lot of theologians believe, is that, that he went to the blessed side of Sheol and from there he took the believers with him to heaven. The judgment side of Sheol and Hades, well, that's remained unchanged. The scriptures teach that all the unbelieving dead go there and await this final judgment that we'll speak about, the creed speaks about, and we'll speak about in weeks. So did Jesus go to Sheol or Hades when he died? Many, if not most, think that that's what the scriptures are arguing, that he did. Did Jesus go to hell when he died? Well, considering that Jesus told the criminal on the cross next to him that today you'll be with me in paradise and not I'll see you in hell, no, I, I don't think he did. Now, hopefully this has been helpful for everybody who's found this line in the creed confusing. But look, more importantly, some of you, I'm sure, are asking, why in Hades would I need to know this, John? What's the big deal? Why don't we just drop it? It's confusing. Well, I'll tell you why. First, because what we're confessing when we say that Jesus descended into hell, or as we now understand it, that he descended into the realm of the dead, is that Jesus really, really died. Jesus experienced all of death. His death on the cross was not ceremonial. It was not metaphorical. Jesus actually was dead. He didn't swoon, as some theories have said. His, his heart didn't slow down to such a slow rate that people thought he was dead and mistakenly buried him alive, and somehow he, he worked his way out of the grave. See, when we say this, we're saying Jesus died, and he died all the way into Hades. And that has profound meaning for, for a couple of reasons. 
Here's the first. The first is that Jesus, one day he's, he's asked for a sign that he is who he said he is. And I mean, we're all guilty of doing this, right? How many of us have asked Jesus for a sign that, that he's real? Well, you know, if you're, if you're there, God, I'll believe if you just show me this sign, right? Or, or uh, God, you know, I, uh, here's what I need from you in order to believe that you exist. Well, Matthew records a story that's similar. He says that some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you, right? Some things never change. And so Jesus answered. Check out his answer. Jesus goes, he says, a wicked and an adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign. See, here it comes, right? And, and I would imagine people were sitting around going, okay, here it comes. This is great. Here comes the sign we've been waiting for. Maybe if you and I heard this today, if Jesus were, were, were with us in church and out in the foyer on Sunday, and he said, here's the sign you've been looking for, maybe you'd start to go, oh, is it me? Is the sign I'm going to get into the school that I wanted to, or I got the girl I wanted, or the house I wanted, or the job I wanted? Jesus, I can't wait. Tell me what the sign is. Jesus says, here's the sign. No sign's coming except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What? The sign of the prophet Jonah. Imagine those that gathered the Pharisees looking at each other. They know the story of Jonah, and they've, they've got to be thinking, like, is this something that's going to happen to you, Jesus? You're always off on those boat trips with your disciples. Is, are you going to wind up getting swallowed up by a fish or something? And so Jesus explains it. He goes, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want to see something even cooler? Here's actually what Jonah recorded about his three days in the belly of the fish. He said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, right? Um, out of the belly of Shoal I cried, and you heard my voice. Jesus being dead, like really dead, like three days dead, like descended into Shoal dead, just like, in a sense, Jonah Jesus is just like Jonah, even down to this concept of Shoal. You see, that's the sign. First, it's the sign that Jesus is exactly who he claimed that, that he was, the Messiah, the only God, the, son of, the only Son of God, our Lord. The only one capable of being three days dead and then being re resurrected is Jesus. Now, keeping this line in the creed matters because it proves that Jesus is who he said he was. And it proves what the earlier line in the, in the creed, right, that he's the son of God, that he is the Lord, it proves that he is who the creed claimed him to be. Second, when we say that Jesus descended into hell or to the realm of the dead, we're affirming that for everyone who dies, there is an eternity that awaits. I want you to understand this now. Nobody just dies. Everyone's body does. No one's spirit does. Every one of us is spiritually an eternal being. There is life beyond the grave, and that should matter to us for a couple of reasons. Here's the first. Jesus himself explained it. He goes, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sends me has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Talked about it week one. How do we get eternal life? Right back to week one. We believe in all that Jesus is, said, and did. But then he goes on. 
He goes, do not be amazed at this, for time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will, will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. See, the creed talks about this coming judgment later, and we're going to get to it in a few weeks. But one reason eternal life should matter to us is that according to Jesus, all of us, every one of us is going to rise, some of us to life, some of us to condemnation. And this matters, like a lot. It mattered to the Apostle Paul so much. I think this is what he was thinking when he wrote, for we must all appear, all of us, right, before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what's due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it's to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Why? Well, because Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, right? But for him who died for them and was raised again. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us that message, the message of reconciliation. He goes, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, the creed reminds us that people are eternal and that some of them will live eternally with God and some of them won't. Some of them will be judged and condemned far from God and that's not God's will for them. It's not God's will for them in this life and it's not God's will for them in the life to come. Paul wrote as much to his prodigy Timothy he said that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And here come some of the creedal things again. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The creed is reminding us of what Paul taught us. We are Christ's ambassadors, right? Think this through. God makes his, God makes his plea, his appeal to lost men through us. We're the carriers of the divine message of the creed, the carriers of the message of reconciliation. Don't you understand? This is why it's never just been about going to church. It's always been about being the church of people on a mission with a message. Look, we've said it a million times, but the creed stands as a reminder that lost people matter to God and they have to matter to us. This part of the creed, it gives each of us a purpose and an urgency. Time is of the essence. People's lives matter now and forever, and we have the only message that matters. We are the ambassadors of God. Now, two last things. One, quickly. There's an entire sermon series that needs to be done on this, and I, I might get into it right after Christmas. But since we're eternal beings, we need to start living like them if we say we believe it, it, it should impact the way we live. The creed reminds us to stop living as if we're, we're only going to have 70 or 80 years. That's a lie. 
you don't. Stop your short-term thinking. You'll see it coming up at the end of the creed. But I want you to know, before we even get to it, I'll give you a hint. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Those who have believed, well, you're going to live in the new Chester and the new Mendham and the new Long Valley. And I'm hoping the taxes will be lower. One day, that's what's going to happen. And how you live now, how you steward the gifts that God has given you in this life, things like your time, your money, your position, your platform, it will impact the gifts that you're given to steward in the next life. You're going to live forever, so stop living like you're not. Stop making decisions like you only have one life to live. That's a lie. You're going to live forever. This news has to change how we live, and if it doesn't, then we have to question ourselves, what is it that we really believe? And, and then finally, there's this. This week, again, someone I know, a friend in our church, she lost her dad to COVID. Her dad was a wonderful man of faith. She was telling me when we spoke that her dad used to drive down here. He, he I believe, lived in Staten Island. He, he would drive down here every week with his wife to teach uh, her kids Bible stories. In studying this this week, I couldn't help but think of what the truth of Jesus descending into the realm or the place of the dead would mean to her, what it means for her dad, and and what it should mean to all of us that are trapped in these all-too-quickly-failing bodies, subject to, as the Scriptures call, decay because of sin. Jesus chose in his incarnation to not just experience life as we do, He chose to experience death as all humans do. His body was buried and his soul departed his body and went to the place of the dead. Jesus was not instantaneously raised. He didn't jump off the cross and yell, surprise. Jesus went to the place of the dead. And in so doing, by virtue of his divinity, he defeated death and the grave. See, saying that Jesus went to that place should not be controversial. It should be celebrated. You know why? (laughs) I mean, what's the most afraid you've ever been? I mean, death is like the, you know, the shared human fear. This week I was reflecting on that question myself. When have I most been afraid? Look, you spend a week studying about hell and the place of the dead. You'll start thinking about that too. Well, two things popped into my mind about those times. Well, you know, when you're going somewhere, and, and I mean, you have to go. You have to move forward into it, but you don't want to go. The first place I thought about was, it's kind of silly, but with my kids when they were growing up, they would always have to, whenever we went to the boardwalk, they'd always have to go in the haunted house. Daddy, please, please, can we go in the haunted house? Now, I've never understood the allure of the haunted house. Why am I paying good money to have somebody scare the snot out of me? If I want to pay to be afraid, I'll just go to a Mets game. But my kids, they loved it. Daddy, please, please, please. See, I hate moving forward in the haunted house. I, I hate, in the darkness, taking the step. The other time that comes to mind is the few times in our marriage, it hasn't happened often, where Joan and I will be lying in bed and we both very clearly hear, you know, the loud noise coming from outside the room. Usually, almost always, it's downstairs. You know those times when you both hear it, you both wake up, and you kind of look at each other and hope it was only you that heard it, but then reality sinks in that there might be something going on down there, so you're going to have to go check. You're going to have to walk down those stairs. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Do you know the only thing that's given me any comfort in both of those moments? I'll tell you what it was. 
just as the kids and I are about to enter the haunted house or Joan and I are about to head down the stairs, what I always do to comfort myself in those moments of fear and trepidation, I mean, I act all cool and brave, but then right at the last moment, right on the precipice of the unknown, I push the kids and Joan ahead of me and make them go first. Here you go, you go first. Now, if you, if you know me, you might think that's true, but it's not. I go first, you know why? Because I love them, that's why. In danger, in, in uncertainty, into the unknown, that's what love does. Love goes first. Look, those kids of mine, they were never going in that haunted house unless daddy went first. Joan, well, Joan's pretty tough, right? Joan probably would go down those stairs without me, but I know she felt a heck of a lot better knowing the one who loved her was going first. Do you see what Jesus, our great high priest, has done with death? His descent pushes us to recognize that he doesn't simply know what it's like to die. He knows what it's like to be dead, to dwell among the departed spirits. The resurrection that forms the foundation of our hope, it didn't happen in an instant. It happened after three days and nights in the realm of the dead. Our high priest understands better than we, we, better than we think how we live and how we die. And when we or our loved ones stand on the brink of that same death, I'm telling you, you can draw comfort from knowing that Jesus has already been there. He went first. I love what he told the Apostle John as he sat on that island of Atmos. He goes, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I love this. He goes, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is good news. So guys, next time we recite the Apostles' Creed, don't be confused and don't feel awkward when we get to this part. You hold your head high and you confess it with joy. Jesus descended into hell, into Hades, into the realm of the dead. He went first. You don't have to. And he came out with the keys. And so now walk forward. Don't be afraid. And live like, well, Live like you're going to live forever. Because of Jesus, you are. <laughs>